Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast. On a Wednesday, we're talking USC Trojan football today with Dan Weber, the writer and columnist here at uscfootball.com. Lots of your questions we got to get to talking about spring football about halfway through seven of the 15 practices. Boom. They are done in the book. So we're going to talk about the first half of spring ball. Answer your questions. If you do have a question for us, podcast at uscfootball.com. That is the email address. And if you would like to call or text, you could do that too. 424-254-9141. You can subscribe. We appreciate that on iTunes, itunes.com slash peristyle podcast. Please leave us a positive review. Uh, Five-star rating is always nice. I haven't looked and seen a review lately, so... Go on there and leave a review. I'll go check it out and uh, see what some some of you nice people had to say about us. Uh, good or bad, whatever. We do, we do love to get your feedback, and iTunes is a great place to do that. But we're on Stitcher Radio and Google Play and uh, Audio Boom and all the different kind of podcasting apps. So wherever you want to get your podcast from, you should be able to find the Peristyle Podcast there. Well, let's bring in Dan Weber. Does a great job for us here at uscfootball.com. What's up, Dan? How are you? Hey, uh, I'm doing good. Actually, uh, uh, referring to the podcast, I met uh, last week twice, first time ever, uh, at the USC uh, Western Kentucky basketball game on Monday and at the rainy, rainy practice on Thursday. Earl in West L.A., one of our absolute favorite questioners, uh, I got to talk to him. He was at, at, at both. And Earl didn't have any questions for me. Just uh, a <laughs> really good conversation. And he got to hang in there with us for a while until someone from the uh, football staff, uh, not the coaching part of it, uh, spotted Earl in the uh, restricted media zone and had him escorted out. Oh. So good old, <laughs> we were all just huddled under umbrellas trying to hang in there. But, uh, but uh, I loved meeting Earl. Earl, sharp guy, uh, love Earl's questions, and uh, it was great to, to meet him in person. He's got a question today. Uh, heck, okay. why don't we just go right to it right now? Uh, I noticed at practice the running backs had a drill with a ball on a rope. The coach would pull the rope in an effort to get the running back to secure the ball. Is this drill a holdover from Dela McCullough, or is it something new? Again, it was a pleasure to meet and talk with you last week, Earl in West L.A. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a hold. It's a spring-loaded uh, drill. I mean, uh, it would have been a shame to, uh, yeah, I would have told D-Land, you, you got to get a new one when you go to Kansas City. We're keeping this one because uh, uh, it takes a little work on the coach's part because he's got to keep uh, pulling on that spring as the guy, uh, yeah, but it, it puts uh, kind of pressure on the football and all all sides and you really, you can't, you can't just cover it up on one side or the other. I think it was one of the great drills. Doesn't take a lot of Work every day at practice, uh, but uh, that's the kind of thing you're 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 happy to see that they're they're still doing that. And I'm I, I'm impressed that Earl saw that because uh, a little closer when it was at Cromwell Field, 
in the rain, but uh, it wasn't easy to see everything in the rain. So uh, good job, Earl. Yeah, it's hard to see. Um, and I think they use like Tim Drevno was using like the the punching, like uh, boxing glove sort of thing. But that was during ball security drills, not necessarily uh, the running back stuff. But they're they're usually in a hard position for us to see all the drills they're kind of doing. I I haven't seen them do all the kind of different ones that. Uh, yeah. Dylan McCullough was doing, but yeah, you know, we'll see. It's still early and, you know, still not even halfway through spring ball yet. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the difficulty of replicating D drills is D was a, such a major focus of them as a running back himself. So he was inserted into almost all the drills and, uh, he looks like, you know, had he not maybe had that knee injury, he might, you know, not still be playing, but, uh, but not that far from playing. And so you need, uh, somebody really active and instinctively a running back almost to do those, uh, those drills. Cause he, he developed them for himself as a coach. So, uh, but I just think whatever they, they use of them, uh, it's gotta be a positive. The players loved them. They knew they got better doing them. They don't take a lot of time and they're just, you're so focused. It's as good a use of, of, of time at practice for players as, as I've seen. It just, uh, so, the more they, uh, the more they keep doing them, the better they got to do them, you know, as seriously as they did. I, I we saw this. I still remember when uh, uh, Pete Carroll's time, uh, as he changed coaches over the years, the uh, uh, ball stripping drills. Uh, when you saw them with Troy Polamalu and Lofa Tatupu and Matt Grudigan, and you thought, man, those are. And then you saw them later on. And they didn't always, you know, they might have been doing the same thing, but they weren't doing it with the same coaching staff, and they weren't doing it maybe uh, exactly the same way with the same kind of intensity. So, it, you know, just doing the same drills doesn't, uh, doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to get the same kind of results unless you believe in them. Uh, and, uh, and that's the, the secret and the, and the tricky thing about transition from one coach to the next coach to the next coach. So, uh Probably the hardest thing to do in uh, in coaching, if you're a head coach, is to get the the next group of coaches to do it the way uh, the previous coaches did it. We uh, before we jump into more spring ball talk, I wanted to thank our sponsor Trader Joe's. We actually had a question about this. Uh, Stephen Poway or suggestion. He said, "I thought I would start a little competition among podcast listeners to send in their favorite Trader Joe's products or product names." I'll start us all off. My favorite product name is This Apple Walks Into a Bar. <laughs> it's got a funny name. It's a low-fat apple cereal bar, which are also very tasty. How creative is that for a product name? They're also tasty, too. P.S., if you want to thank me for this idea, I would not turn down a free Trader Joe's Trojans logo shopping bag, uh, Stephen in Poway. Um, yeah, we're we're still trying to schedule some sort of event, Steve. Uh I've been getting pushback uh, from USC. I followed up. Apparently, they didn't get my follow-up, so I followed up again, and I've not heard. So we're going to do something. It might now, if we can't do it for spring, it might be later summer or something. But we'll we'll do it something where you can we can get bags out to everybody. Poway's not that far. You can come up and get a bag. Um, but it's cool. But, yeah, do you have a favorite product name or, or – product in i know I, I mean i have a favorite favorite product but not i don't even know if it's got a favorite name but uh and i've mentioned it before it's uh you know during the uh the holiday season thanksgiving and christmas uh 
they they uh, uh, have corn uh, corn pudding uh, that tastes just like my mom used to make, and, and it's just the best uh, best product. And the only place I've ever seen it is at, at Trader Joe's. So uh, I buy a bunch of it when it first hits the stand, or you know, hits the hits the store, and to get me through the the whole uh, whole holiday season. So so that's my uh, that's my uh, number one the, item. Uh, I think. Cause I'm a sweet tooth guy. I love the uh, the peanut butter cups, but I don't think they have a crazy name. I think it's just like the milk chocolate peanut butter cups or dark chocolate peanut butter cups. But those are probably my favorite thing, like of all time. But yeah, I there's mean, some. You really can't cool... go wrong there. I'm sorry, <laughs> that, you can't go wrong. They're pretty peanut darn good. <laughs> I do love them, but um, yeah, thank yeah. So if you have a favorite uh, name or something, uh, feel free to uh, you know you can text us at. Uh, 424-254-9141, your favorite like product from Trader Joe's, or you can email us podcast at usafootball.com. Uh we get some cool ones. We can read it off in one of the one of the following shows. Um so a week ago today, I think it's a week ago today, right? USC Pro Day? That was a week ago today. Oh yeah, it was. It was. Yep, absolutely. Um, I don't think we've we I don't, did we talk? Did we do a podcast post pro day? I don't know if we no, did. No, I don't think we did. No. no okay. Yeah. So no. that, it was a little crazy that week, and then uh, I think I did a, a podcast with Shotgun Thursday before practice, where you were taking Max Nikias's class. Who, there you go. That's who, right. Yeah. So the president <laughs> of USC. So I'm happy to be standing next to Dan yesterday at practice, and uh, Max Nikias rolls up, and they're talking about uh, <laughs> Greek tragedies, <laughs> and uh, you know plays and all kinds of stuff and you know all this 500 bc talk it was pretty interesting to hear you guys chatting about what he talks about in his class yeah that's fun he's good he's a good teacher and uh interesting class because you got kids majors in in everything i mean and you know like 50 60 something like that uh kids and and, and are coming from all different places in the university and uh really uh interesting uh uh interesting class and and max really uh you know, it's interesting. He's a, an engineer, and all his postgraduate stuff is engineering and what have you. But he uh, teaches the Greek classics, and I only did that once. He was mentioning that on the talking on the sideline. I said, "Well, I took uh, I went I took the classical course at Saint Xavier High School in Cincinnati, Jesuit school. Took a two years of, of uh, Greek, and then took another year of Greek in college." Uh, but when, once we got the Greek composition, that was probably the end. Uh, I would say, you know, it was all classical stuff. And uh, so that sounds really interesting. And he said, well, you got to come to my class. So, so I, I showed up at his class, and I didn't have a book. And he, and about 10 minutes later, his secretary, I think, must have come from, the, I don't know, from the bookstore or from his office or whatever. And she's like kind of huffing and puffing. And she's got a book for me, and because uh, uh, they do a lot of reading in the class and all that. But it, it's really, I I've really enjoyed it. Uh, just uh, uh, it's kind of fun to go back to to school a little bit. And uh, and he he's a really really good teacher. He's really you can tell uh, his interest is in very much in leadership and how to be a leader and all of that. So. Uh, we're going to try to get Max to to move some of that leadership into. He's the head of the uh, uh, Pac-12 CEO group, and he's also the head of the. Uh, uh, he's the head. I guess he, they call it the chair of the board of governors of the college football playoff, 
which are two really big deal positions and positions where I think Max could really influence uh, some of the thing, the ways in which uh, USC football and USC athletics in general go forward. And there, this is a time when that's probably important. So, uh, so maybe we'll, we'll, uh, uh, you know, maybe we, uh, you know, get Max to, uh, I'm trying to think the best way, because um, I think he really cares about sports. He really understands. And I know that isn't the general opinion, maybe on the board, uh, but I think he really does care about about sports. He's enthusiastic and enjoys it. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a catch-up if you grew up in, you know, Greece. And, you know, you don't see anything even remotely resembling uh, American college athletics uh, that you're, you're playing a little catch-up. But, uh, but he really does seem to enjoy it, and I think uh, he, he's kind of a natural leader. So, uh, so maybe, uh, maybe uh, those uh, positions for Max uh, can, can really have some impact. Uh, so, Tony, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, that was kind of a little tangent. I thought it would be fun, uh, something to share with the with the fans or you know the, our listeners because it was cool to be able to kind of hear him speak and yeah, it definitely sound like he was a quality teacher there. As far as you know, it's not just a guy that's going through the motions. Um, but the reason I brought up the pro day was there was a lot of talk about. And I think we saw this last year too. USC's strength and conditioning program after seeing players kind of change their bodies significantly in the in the two or three months since the Cotton Bowl. So here's a question, a voicemail question that deals with that. J.D. from D.C. with a question for Dan this week. <clears throat> After witnessing Pro Day, there should be another reminder that something is seriously off with USC's strength and conditioning and nutrition program. How did Darnold, Hawkins, Talamavo, Falla, etc. transform their bodies more in two months working with outside staff than they did in three to five years at USC. And when has Stevie Mitchell run a 4-3-4 since enrolling at USC? Just asking. Yeah, I mean, uh, I know I asked Clay about that, and Clay said, well, it's their, you know, they're basically finished with school, or that's as much school as they're going to get right now, and they're 100% uh, doing nothing but taking care of their body eating right, uh, uh, lifting weights, all that kind of thing. Uh, I think it points to a couple of things. One, if you're in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, maybe there isn't much else to do. I mean, you're not exactly going out on the town, and and you're basically doing what those kids at USC are doing uh, after January. You're doing that every minute you're there. Uh, How do you get – that same kind of total focus at USC where there's so much else to do. I mean, you know, the pluses of USC's recruiting, you know, where you are and what all is going on around you and what kind of, a, you know, campus life and what kind of, you know, city life and all that. I think it does work against a little bit against, you know, unless you, you get the Port Augustans of the world, uh, it works a little bit against, uh, uh, you know, having that kind of, singular focus on football it's hard uh but it does make you think when you see a viani talamavaya moving the way he was moving at 300 pounds down 40 uh uh he would have been how much better uh, uh able 
you know, to handle some of the things you would really like those guys to be able to handle if he were down at 300. And if it's better for him to be 300 now, it would have been better to be 300, you know, in, in September. And um, uh, I think that's a fail. And USC has more people. Certainly, they're, you know, have more people in the nutrition program and has more people, uh, you know, focused on that and they're spending more money and, and, uh, you know, it's more inclusive for more athletes and all the things that used to not happen. Um, but, uh, you know, when you would see it, you know, you know, five, six, eight years ago, uh, you'd say, well, USC just not doing what the others are doing. Now they're supposed to be doing what, you know, the Alabamas and the Notre Dames and Ohio States are doing. Uh, so I think, I think I hope they recognize what's happening. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I will say this. When you look at guys like uh, Giuliano Falonico and you think, okay, he was 209 last year, he's 235, still qu- probably quicker than he was. Uh, you're thinking, okay, it's working, you know, with some of these guys. There are those five second-year Offensive linemen, I think, are the key. Uh, You want to see those, and I didn't see enough change in their bodies uh, as much as I would have liked. And and I think it's going to be important that those guys by, you know, next fall are real, because they've all got the frame. They've all got the size. They've all got everything you would need, and just to get them in that that kind of shape that you want to see these guys get into – and I think you could sell, you know, just the fact that, you know, if you're going to, why wait till then? Why not have all that good film and all that history of, of eating right and, and lifting and doing all that, that, uh, you know, that you're going to say, well, in the last two months, I did it. Uh, why not, you know, why not pick up on that now? Uh, and, you know, they don't have somebody like the guy at Alabama. With the guy at Alabama be able to come in and in the middle of LA and, and, and be able to do what he does at Alabama. I don't know. I think that's a, a kind of a, a question and they have a, you know, a little bit different sort of a kid at USC. Uh, so I, I think it's one of the most important things they have to figure out though. They got to figure it out and they can't, I just don't think it's a good enough answer for as what Clay said. Well, now they've got the time to concentrate on it. And that's all they're doing, and that's why. Well, no, that 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 isn't a good answer for why uh, Viani was able to drop 40 pounds. Uh, you know, you, you, that's no. Uh, Got to do better than that. Four years here. Uh, if he's he's overweight, he's overweight, and yeah. he didn't ever really change his body look until. You know, the last two months or three months, whatever. He he got a little early start with the injury, but. Uh, uh, yes, he's got to do better. No, there's no question about it. I don't know exactly what the answer is. I don't want to necessarily say, oh, these guys are terrible or this guy's doing a bad job or blah, blah, blah. I just think USC in gen- just has to do a better job there. they got to figure it out. They have to be as physical as Ohio State, for example. And over the years, USC has been as physical as Ohio State, and they absolutely were not. Now, they will tell you, oh, no, Ohio State just changed everything they were doing, and we weren't ready, and it was just uh, uh, all mental stuff. No, it was not. Uh, Watching those Ohio State kids up close, uh, there was a a, a real difference physically. 
uh, and their ability to to be physical and fast and explosive. And USC did not have it. Yeah, a lot of that could be just practice. And if you practice that way, you can play that way. USC doesn't always practice that way, so uh, so it could be a combination of, of you know of both things. But uh, uh, they've got to figure it out. And I, I don't want to throw blame. I just think they got to get it right. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And uh, I think Neil Callaway addressed that a little bit yesterday at practice, right, about the uh, how the offensive line showed not a lot of toughness uh, against Ohio State in the Cotton Bowl. You know, I missed I, – I was there for the second part of his – I didn't hear the first part. I'm glad he said that because, I mean, they couldn't have been tough. They couldn't find him to hit him. You know, I mean, even if they – you know, you'd have had to give them baseball bats to be able to make contact with those Ohio <laughs> State defensive linemen because they, they were just by them. You know, I mean, you can't be tough physically if you can't touch them. Uh, they, they just had no explosiveness at all. Again, it, it's sometimes hard to get them to kind of recognize that uh, or to admit to it. Uh, you know, you, you talk to them about the Ohio State game, and, and again, it was a communications issue. Uh, they were doing stuff we hadn't seen, all, all that. Uh, so I saw I saw guys getting pushed back into the backfield, big time. Uh, they didn't have the punch. They didn't have the strength. And that, and that's you know you see a Nico Fallow have a tough game that game, and you see him show up at pro day, and he looks you almost don't recognize him with his upper body, and his uh, you know much bigger. Uh, arms and, 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 you know, you're thinking this is just, you know, not even or barely three months. And, uh, you, and you look at Nico now at a 301, which is a really good, a good size, a good weight for him. And he looks like, you know, a big time, uh, center. And he was always, you know, struggling to keep it much above 290 before. And it looks like good weight. And, uh, you wish he would have had that weight. Uh, for the Iowa State game, would have uh, it sure looks like it would have helped him. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think it would have too. Um, he he looks so different. That's another one of those things. Mm. Um, let's go to Tarek. He had a question. I keep hearing this, and he puts in quotes: "Defense being ahead of offense." Excuse. T and Clay have been at USC collectively for fourteen years, and Clancy for three years. Has there been one time since Clancy's been here? that the offense after the completion of spring practice or fall camp has looked better than the defense. Other than the Stanford game in 2017, since 2010, the offense uh, has this offense ever looked decent during the first month of the season versus a good team slash defense. And how is this year going to be any different than the last eight? Tarek, bring a little heat. He normally doesn't do that. All right, Tarek. Nice. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I don't think it's a an excuse this year when you look at the makeup of of, of the the teams. I mean, they uh, if you have an offense that loses, as Clay will tell you, a four thousand yard you know passer and one of the all time USC greats and and a very potentially a you know number one overall draft pick and the fifth all time leading rusher and a guy Deontay Burnett who has the record for pass receptions in both the uh, Rose Bowl and the Cotton Bowl, uh, that's a one, two, three hit that is probably going to set you back uh, under any circumstances. And we were talking about this the other day about how uh, how 
difficult it was in the spring of 2003 for the you know the quarterbacks. Uh, Carson Palmer was gone, and you had four guys out there, and uh, and we were all sure when they when Norm Chow picked you know Matt Leinart as the quarterback for the spring game. We thought, what did he do? Flip a coin? I mean, how? Who did? Nobody did anything to stand out, you know. And I'll, I I, I like to ask this question of kids when they mention you know losing the number one, maybe number one overall draft pick and all and, and at quarterback. And you say, well, how'd that USC team do that, that had lost that number one draft pick and had a, a spring where uh, the offense was, you know, really struggling. How'd that team do that next year? He said, oh, let's see. Uh, and I said, well, they actually won the first national championship in 25 years. So uh, it's not always the case. Uh, now, of course, they had some really great, defensive players you hope this team maybe could follow that that is a you know is a way that that this team has to has to go so i don't think it's a it's a bad thing this year to be able to say the defense is ahead of the offense the defense better be ahead of the offense they got you know they got a lot of players they you know got a cam smith and a, a marvell tell and guys who were you know playing at, at really high levels and biggie marshall just looks like uh Okay, when you go out there, you say, "Okay, that's what Biggie Marshall should look like." Okay, that, that very impressive. All the young, uh, you know, secondary guys coming in, one one more, you know, athletic looking than the other, and big and rangy. And you got those linebackers that you could almost have an entire coverage team of just linebackers by the time everybody gets here. And uh, you know Brandon Peely you know, filling in and, and up front, uh, and uh, um, Malik Thornton just you know bigger and stronger looking and and, and much more assertive I think, and uh, and Marlon Tuipilotu you know in the in the wings and, and when he you know he's doing a lot of running every day and he just looks like he's uh, he's going to be a force and, and Porter Gustin back and and just a whole you know, bunch of guys that, you know, possible uh, on the other side. And uh, so the defense should be ahead. Uh, I don't think it's an excuse this year, uh, but they do have four returning starters on the offensive line. Now, Toa is not in the, uh, in the team rotation right now. He, he won't play. He don't do any, uh, you know, full contact this spring. Uh, but that shouldn't be an excuse. Uh, and, you know, they really need to, you know, come out of spring with a, uh, uh, with good confidence in what they're doing offensively. I know there's always going to be questions about, are they doing the right things offensively? I know we saw at pro day, we saw they put Jordan Palmer, uh, put uh, Sam Donald in a true pro offense, pro style offense, which had him under center most of the time. And had him running lots of play action and rollout stuff. And you thought, holy cow, how good could Sam have been if they ran this offense? I mean, it got him naturally, you know, turning up field and naturally throwing the ball on the run and having the kind of time you get when you uh, run play action. And uh, he looked so, I think, uh, to be honest, as good as he looked, for all the reasons he looked good, one of the reasons was they had him running that stuff and that's not the kind of stuff they can run out of, uh, you know, out of the quote pro style, you know, hybrid pro style, whatever that offense USC is running now. Uh, honestly, I really liked the looks of it. I thought it was, 
you'd like to see more of it. Uh, Clay says they are doing more of it. I did ask him about that, and he said, "Yeah, we're 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 doing more of that." I, I don't know. I remember back in the day. I guess when John Booty got here, and everybody thought, you know, he's a shotgun quarterback. He's not really a under center quarterback. He doesn't have that kind of foot speed to get outside and do all the things you want him to do. And he had he'd been a great high school quarterback as a shotgun quarterback. And USC was like, oh, that that crazy shotgun stuff is that's just too crazy. Uh, we can't really take a you know take a shot at the shotgun because uh, that's just you know stuff can happen. Well, now it's the opposite. Now it's like, oh, I don't know if we can really put him under center. That's crazy if you put a quarterback under center. <laughs> uh, so so I'd like to see them. But honestly, when you saw Sam Donald running the pro style from under center and all the natural things it does for a quarterback of his athletic ability, you just realize, wow, uh, no wonder he, uh, he did all those Matt Liner things in a uh, maybe not as precise an athlete, but in a better athlete, uh, athlete's body. And um, you, it all clicked when you thought, wow, what might have been? Uh, but that's not their tradition. That's not what they, uh, what they grew up coaching, certainly not the last uh, six, seven, eight years. And it's not what they're going to do, although maybe some changes. I know the coaches, uh, Coach uh, Ellis, Brian Ellis, said, uh, you know, they're really not – they're just not changing uh, much of the Clay, uh, both of them said that yesterday. They're just not changing much of the offense uh, uh, in that way. Uh, just maybe some adding some things, but um, but we'll see how this how this develops because I'm not sure this is a team that can you know look at the quarterback to to get you 300 yards a game in the air. And you got the receivers maybe to do it, uh, but but you have the quarterbacks that can. Uh, can get can do that. Uh, I don't know. And uh, my thanks for that, Dan. My apologies, and that that didn't sound like Tark because it wasn't Tark. It was actually Troy Trojan that sent that in. So my apologies to okay. both Troy and Tark. Sorry about that. Mix that one up. Uh, Eric, Troy bringing the heat, Dan. Okay. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, Eric and Duck Country. Do any of the safeties have the coverage ability to replace a Jane Harris at nickel so USC can have a bigger body close to the line of scrimmage? Thanks as always, Eric. I think most of them do. I mean, they're really athletic. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, we haven't seen Isaiah Palomala, but uh, uh, but uh, uh, you know, you're calling from Duck Country. Uh, Talano uh, Hafanga has got as much athleticism as anybody at any position. I mean, he's just uh, he does he moves so effortlessly, uh, so smooth. Um, uh, Bubba Bolden, obviously, I think, you know, he's a, he's a kind of an enforcer sort of a guy, a big hitter and, and what have you. But, uh, but no, they've got the, the safeties are awfully athletic. Uh, so I mean, I, I don't know though that you need absolutely, uh, a Jenny, I think is picking up where he left off, uh, watching him. Uh, he just, uh, he become, uh, uh, so instinctive and, and, you know, alert to the ball. And, uh, uh, I just think to have, you know, a former quarterback, I think always so often, the uh, uh, great USC defensive players like, 
the ones I mentioned, Lofa Tatupu and, and, and Troy uh, and Matt Grudegood were former quarterbacks. And I think that gives a Jenny, you know, a big, a big edge. You might not, you know, quite have the, you know, I think what, 5'11", 185 or something, 190, maybe not quite that, that, that big tight end covering body, but, uh, but he got a lot of skill, a lot of experience, a lot of toughness, uh, and he's showing it. Uh, I think he's had a really good spring. So, uh, but, uh, but yes, yeah, so I think USC does have, you know, the big bodied safeties that, that can certainly, uh, you know, play that position because of their athleticism. Um, let's see, let's go on to actually, well, you had a text question. Uh, we don't really go much into this that we talked about already, but I thought it was interesting what he was saying. He said, USC had a center, Craig Gibson, who was a David versus Goliath guy, starting four years at a mere 250 pounds. Legend has it, during college, his girlfriend didn't want him to gain weight. However, uh, they broke up after his senior year, and Gibson showed up at the NFL at an NFL camp at 290. Today I read, uh, Shotgun was a pro day, marveling at the dramatic physical transformation by Viani and Nico. I seem to recall similar stories last year with Zach Banner and Damian Mama. My question, do you think our offensive linemen are making dramatic temporary physical changes to perform better for the combine slash pro day or permanent changes to be better in the NFL. And what does it say about their size condition at USC? So we kind of talk about this, but if you have a few more thoughts, we can. Yeah. I mean, I think Zach Banner was up and down all the way through his USC years. So, uh, you know, he, he had a tendency to do that while he was at USC. So, you know, whatever he, he's done for the NFL would have been, part of that uh and i think damien did a little bit of that too when you're 375 or whatever coming out of high school uh you're probably you know gonna almost have to uh you know get that weight down i was talking last week i guess at practice and he does look good i mean he's uh you know you would have liked to have seen a harder push i think when those guys got here at first uh usc did not have much of a of, of a uh, nutrition operation and they didn't have as much control as they possibly uh you know could have or should have or uh, some others did uh but uh but you know it's an ongoing thing I, I just think you know it's it's harder i would think to control that part of of, of players uh, you know diets at usc i just think uh it's it, you know it's just you, you don't quite have, I mean, one of the options, you know, the, the things you like about USC, if you're recruiting a kid is all the opportunities and all everything that LA has to offer. And one of those is, you know, an opportunity to go out a lot of places and, you know, experience a lot of, you know, food and, and, uh, I, I just think it'll always be a challenge at USC to control their diets. Uh, but I think it's something Maybe USC has to take it more seriously even than they do at places like, you know, Notre Dame and, and, and Alabama where they've really got them under control uh, because of, you know, there's not much else, uh, you know, going on, whereas at USC there is. So, uh, uh, but I think it's, you know, if I were a head football coach at USC, it's something I'd really be thinking about uh, in terms of uh, what's the best way uh, to get this done as, you know, for their own good, uh, obviously both, you know, as a college player and at the next level. And I, I think you could sell that, but you have to sell it hard and you have to work at it every day. And it, it would be a, 
be a tough uh, a tough deal to work on. But uh, I think you look at the the group of young guys that are in now who could really take advantage of it. And uh, this is a real opportunity for USC. So I think uh, they they probably got to, you know, this is their chance to, to show that, that they can do the whole program thing, uh, you know, correctly. And it, it really does matter because people like, you know, uh, Clemson and Alabama and Notre, and Notre Dame and Ohio State are working so hard at it. And, you know, it's not as hit or miss as it was maybe, you know, 15, 20 years ago. It's, people are really good at this stuff. And I think you've got to really you got to compete with them at that level. Let's go to uh, Jason in Longhorn Country. He says, "Hey Dan, with the lack of physicality and full speed nature of USC's current practice environment, do you think that a walk on like Clay Matthews would get enough exposure in practice to earn significant playing time on an SC team in this era?" Fight on, Jason in Longhorn Country. Well, that's a good question. I, I think one of the negatives of of uh, easing back on uh, you know on the physicality. I mean, I, I think I was talking to somebody from Alabama uh, who we did some stuff with uh, the shows and podcasts and that two years ago in the uh, in August. And I was really high on USC the first two and a half weeks, maybe of, of spring or of uh, summer ball. And that's when we did, you know, and I thought this, this is a team that, cause they were, you know, everything was on the fundamentals and everything was on, you know, they were physical and they were working at it. And you thought, well, they're going to get there. This is, they're going the right direction. And then the last two weeks after they named the starters, the last two weeks was all game prep stuff and, and, and not very physical and not, you know, uh, not going nearly as hard it was all about getting ready for the game and they changed some of what they were going to do offensively and it was all kind of cerebral stuff and they ended up down at alabama you know or at the uh you know at the at&t stadium uh and the best thing they did was you know their 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 entrance uh and, and and then after that you know things got a little shaky and they had no idea what they needed to do to prepare for an alabama and uh, very similar to the same thing, I think, with Ohio State. And that's, the I think, the, the ingredient we got to see, you know, get fixed is the ability to go uh, to keep the physicality and the fundamentals of the spring when you don't have a game to get ready for and in August when you do, but you really are getting ready for the whole season. And to keep that going week to week to week to week, I think that's what the really good programs are able to do. I think USC wins the majority of their games because they got way better talent than the Pac-12 teams they play. And to some extent, you know, the, the out-of-conference teams. Uh, I mean, they beat Texas last year because in the end they had more talent than Texas. Texas was playing a true freshman quarterback and uh, lost their, their really good tackle. And, and so uh, at the end, USC came through. But it uh, shouldn't have been that close. Uh, that's the, that's the, I just think that's the secret. That's the learning curve, I think, for Clay and company is to figure out how do they keep, you know, the emphasis on fundamentals and physicality going throughout the season. I know it's been a hard pull because 
for so many years, USC was under, you know, behind, you know, behind eight ball of NCAA sanctions and uh, having a lot fewer scholarship players than the people they were playing. And so under Lane, you know, Lane, in a big, uh, you know, theory as to how to run the team like a pro franchise where you've only got 50 some eligible players. And very often they had fewer than that uh, who were originally recruited scholarship players. So they were always trying to figure out how do we get through the week and how do we have everybody ready to go for Saturday and that kind of, well, that's not where they are now. And they, you know, they can still get through the week and they can still get to Saturday and have better players than most of the people they're playing and win those games. If you want to win that next level, that's next level up, you have to be physical, fundamental, and you have to be competitive in a way that the younger guys every week in practice have a chance to step up. And I'm not sure, like, I look at an Austin Jackson and, and a Clayton Johnson, even after he, uh, you know, and they both got some, you know, got some work, but did they, did they get enough work? physical fundamental work week after week after week where they could a challenge the guy ahead of them and B just keep getting better. And you talk to some of the younger kids and maybe they think they didn't get as much better as they thought they should have last fall. And that's where that NFL model falls short because those guys, they are who they are. And their job is to get ready for the next week. They're not working on improving, you know, their basic skill set and all of that. That's pretty well set, established. That's why they're in the NFL. But college football is different. You can't coach it like the NFL. You do have to get take these young kids, give them the opportunity to get better and, and prove that they can get better and prove that they can play with that guy that's a starter and I know Clay has talked about, well, we kind of know who the starters are, but we're working on the second and third team guys and getting them better. So that's a plus, working on getting those guys better. What I'd like to see is uh, that we really don't have any starters set uh, and that everybody's in the mix. And it isn't a case of, uh, you know, I'd like the starters to think they're not the starters. I'd like the starters to think, i got to win this job again. Uh, and that's, you know, again, that's not the NFL model. Uh, the NFL model is kind of USC's model at this point. And I think you'd like to see USC get back to the place where, yeah, a Clay Matthews can walk on and, you know, uh, show in practice that he has to be on the field. Uh, and I'm not sure uh, if that could happen. I'm not sure if, if some of these freshman offensive linemen have been able to show, uh, have been able to show that other than if somebody gets hurt in front of them. Um, so, uh, good point, good observation, and uh, I think it's a it's the big challenge for for Clay and company to figure out how to do that. We got one from Tarek, actually Tarek. Uh, does Toa Lobendon look better at center than left tackle? And how has Austin Jackson looked? Austin Jackson looks really big and athletic. Uh, he was one of the guys, you know, that probably wishes he had developed more in the fall and that he's really working on getting all like the basics, like the stance and just the, uh, you know, coming out of the stance and all that. I mean, you look at him and he looks like, uh, could easily be, you know, on an NFL roster. I mean, just got this almost perfect size and speed and athleticism. Uh, and now it's just, 
getting to be fundamentally sound technique-wise uh, and explosive and with a real punch. And uh, and uh, we'll see. I mean, and Clayton Johnson looked – I would say Clayton Johnson – Looking, uh, I mean, that's an interesting battle there. And, uh, I mean, at least there you've got two guys that are kind of, uh, at that first team level, uh, battling it out. You know, you wish you had that all the way across. Uh, as far as Toa, he looks like a center to me physically. Uh, he's that, you know, veteran, smart guy, kind of been there, done that, knows everything, which is kind of what you want to have as a center. He always looked a little undersized and maybe not maybe quite as uh, a big enough frame uh, to handle, for example, those really explosive outside edge rushers and that kind of thing where, you know, you just really have to, you know, if you're not 6'6 six, six and, and, you know, kind of, you know, quick and lean and all that kind of thing, uh, you know, it's a challenge. Uh so he looks more at home at center. We'll see, uh, you know, if that that turns out to be the case. I think I certainly think it gives him a much better shot to play in the NFL to have the ability uh, to uh, to play, you know, all those positions. He might, you know, be a little under, you know, maybe not quite the big enough frame to play tackle, maybe not quite the big enough body uh, uh, to play guard, but he could. And if you were an NFL, you know a coach or general manager and you think, wow, I get this kid. I can kind of cover for three positions if I really need to. Uh, I think that's, um, you know, that's a plus. So if, if Toa, you know, holds up, you know, physically and everything, he goes good. I kind of like him at center. Although what we're seeing is, and what we're hearing is that the two freshman centers, uh, uh, redshirt, uh, uh, you know, Brett Nealon and, uh, and incoming freshman, Justin Dietz are, are the two guys that both Clay and uh, Neil Calloway, when asked who's jumping out at you, who's the guys that they both mentioned the two freshman centers. So uh, they both are a little bit, I don't, wouldn't say necessarily undersized, but at 6'2", uh, next to the, all the big guys, uh, they do look, uh, you know, and yet that's not necessarily you know a terribly bad thing uh, at center but they both look like they belong so uh and we'll see how and that's the other thing you want to work these guys hard enough and see what all the combinations might be so that you've given them enough opportunity to show what they can do and again you know that's what that's what happens at practice and that's where practice becomes really important and just because maybe you can um, run your skill positions as more of a basketball kind of experience uh timing and you know precision and 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 emphasis on skill set i don't think you can do that with the offensive line they gotta they have to approach it differently and i think that's the mix that they have to figure out and i'm not sure uh, as much work in shorts, uh, they will tell you it does. They're, they're fine. There's no difference working in shorts, you know, as long as you're in shoulder pads and helmets. Uh, I'm not convinced of that, but no, I'm not coaching them. So <laughs> we're just watching. Uh, we got our buddy Dan, uh, USC class of 1962, 
Great insights into spring practices. More teams seem to be involving uh, more than one quarterback in the offense based on individual talents. Last year, I was very impressed with the running ability of Matt Fink on the zone read when he got a chance to play. I love that all three quarterbacks can be utilized to mix it up and confuse the defense unless one is is just head and shoulders above everyone else and healthy. I don't believe in rotating quarterbacks, but special packages based on unique abilities like Fink's Running ability does make sense. What are your thoughts? Well, I think looking ahead to next fall, I think the ability of the offense to play with more than one quarterback will be a good thing because you don't you don't necessarily see that they're going to just say it's the one guy. I mean, I think it's going to be hard with everything that we know JT Daniels can do and his skill set to keep him off the field. But I don't know that it's going to be possible after 25 practices to say you're the guy. Uh, So I think, you know, a multiple quarterback, and and let's face it, it hasn't limited, you know, uh, Alabama from contention. I mean, they were multiple quarterbacks against USC in Dallas, and that certainly didn't hurt them. And, uh, they were multiple quarterbacks in the championship game this, you know, this last year, and you know they won the championship. So, um, I think team, teams, it's not quite as you know uh, that old saying is if you have two quarterbacks, you have none. Uh, I think USC probably goes in that direction where you know they go into the UNLV opener playing two or maybe three, uh, which means you'd like to see them run a lot of plays. Uh, but, uh, but with not the sense that, you know, in the next two games on the road at Stanford and Texas, that it would be a big, uh, you know, uh, difficulty for them to try to play multiple quarterbacks. I think, uh, I think that may come out of, uh, of the spring and, and the summer is, uh, you know, it's not always the thing to do, but maybe in this case, uh, having a couple of quarterbacks that you feel comfortable with and maybe, you know, bring a little bit different, uh, you know, things to the table is the way to go. And I think having the right mental out- outlook about that and having the right, you know, not, uh, oh, no, we got to do this. No, with having the idea, hey, we got a couple of guys that can, that can play and we've got an offense. I did ask Clay about that yesterday. If they, have a, you know, the offense that they basically uh, can transition to, uh, say, when JT Daniels gets here, is he going to be able? And Clay said, absolutely, it's going to be, you know, we're all we're doing the same stuff for all all the guys, even though he does admit they are going to call run more for the quarterback, uh, certainly with Matt and Jack. And um, so I think they're approaching it the right way right now. We'll see how that works out, but I don't think they'll be all that afraid. And let's face it, they weren't with Sam and, and Max Brown. I mean, they put in, uh, you know, uh, red zone and short yardage and third down stuff for for, uh, for Sam. Uh, so I thought that was an indicator that probably, the more you think about it, should have been an indicator that, well, if he's going to be your guy doing that, maybe he should be your guy on first and second downs too. Uh, I think it was kind of a concession and it was difficult for them to get, you know, to get off uh, a max. But, uh, but I think they're, you know, they're able to handle that concept. Uh, and it's certainly the way it's working in the spring. Uh, 
the way they're interchanging the two of them. It's, you know, an adjustment for the quarterback. They're working with all, you know, different guy. You could be in there finishing up as, as Matt did yesterday. Uh, his first time he went, you know, he went four for four. I guess he got five plays with the second group against the second group. Then they kept him in and he went uh, with the first group against the first group. So he's, he's got all different personnel uh, in, in, you know, 10 plays. And yet, uh, I think the more you do that, the you know the better off you, you'll be. And I think they're they're doing enough scrimmaging. I like that. I like all the you know the eleven on eleven stuff that they're doing. And we don't get to see the film, so obviously we can't we can't tell in terms of the development. Uh, even the offensive lineman, you don't know all the calls, and it's 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 hard to know for sure. But uh, but I. I I keep it up. Uh, I don't think they can do too much of it. And they're going to go in full pads uh, Thursday and, and Saturday. And uh, uh, I'm all for it. I like uh, I like the way they're approaching spring. Yesterday was a little bit surprising that, that they they went hard and they went fast. They just didn't go long. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they kind of – is that three horns, really, at four, 443 or whatever it was? So, uh, uh but uh, so they're they're never probably going to overwork them. This is not going to be Bear Bryant, you know, with the Junction Boys in Texas A&M and the, you know, West Texas Desert or wherever he took them. Uh, but uh, uh, but they're working them pretty well so far, and we'll see. All right, we got a few more. We'll try to go. I know we've been a little long. We'll try to go through these quickly. Uh, Stephen Poway. He said, I've heard several references to the confusion in play calling last season with Coach Clay Helton calling some plays, T. Martin calling most of the plays, and Tyson Helton calling third down and red zone plays. This arrangement, more specifically Tyson Helton, seemed to be blamed a lot for the lack of coherent play calling strategy. And the folk wisdom seems to be that things will improve in this regard now that Tyson is gone. But why would we assume that the problem was... Uh, with the coach who has left. I'm not convinced that Tyson, who coached under a very prolific and creative Western Kentucky offense, and Coach Jeff Brom was actually uh, was the problem in a in that tricky triad. What are your thoughts on this, Stephen Poway? Yeah, I think it was the uh, it was just how that all they hadn't done it before and how that all worked. I think the head coach has to always have <clears throat> the ability to uh, you know say the big short yardage situation to make that call uh but uh i just think you know the, the interplay between uh maybe t and tyson wasn't as smooth as it needed to be and, and they just hadn't done it before and you know you might be like a t trying to uh accommodate uh on third down uh what tyson was thinking and, and tyson maybe not wanting to be too pushy uh, and, 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 you know, knowing that he's the offense coordinator, I think they made it really clear. Uh, Tay, uh, uh, Clay has said T will be calling the plays this year in no uncertain terms. T will call the play. And I think T will become a better, uh, play caller, just a smoother, you know, and he, I think he had a tendency to second guess himself. I mean, there were times, uh, which one was it? The one uh, I guess that Sam threw the in the championship game uh, threw the ball basically out of the end zone and uh, the Michael Pittman catch uh, was it for 54 yards or whatever it was, and he was still second guessing himself 
uh, as the play, you know, develops, uh, T was. And, 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 you know, maybe that's a good thing, and, and maybe it's just, you know, a matter of uh, you get to the point where you don't, you know, second-guess yourself. Uh, uh, so I think you have to be a little bit optimistic that they did learn from maybe some of the uncertainties and some of the back and forth that happened in, in terms of, you know, who who does what, when, uh, in terms of the play calling. I think they're getting away from uh, some of that, uh, you know, hesitation and uncertainty. And, I, and I, I absolutely wouldn't say that you would personalize it and say, well, it was, you know, because of Tyson and Tyson's gone and all that. No, I just think it's more of uh, a smoothing out of, how they're doing it. And uh, they look pretty good in the spring in terms of, of uh, you know, obviously not game situations. Uh, but they don't seem to be having any trouble uh, going quickly, uh, you know, getting to the next play and, and, and getting the next play, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, just the way they want it, want the play to be. So, uh, but uh, yeah, they've got to avoid some of that uncertainty that, that, certainly existed last year that, you know, that there were times when you could just tell the, the next call isn't coming in right away and they're maybe not real sure about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that tended to happen at goal line, you know, and the, the third and fourth down situations where you needed that absolutely, you know, perfect call. And we, you know, they made a lot of good calls too last year. And those get lost, I think, a little bit because we tend to focus on the ones that that didn't go so well. But uh, but I, I think it's an area that they are aware of and concentrating on, and know they've got to do it better. Yeah, I I, I was the one that asked Clay that question a week or two ago, and it was he was pretty clear. Like it was almost like he was waiting for someone to ask that, and so yes, he, he was. He knew he knew it was like nope, he's calling the plays. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, very, very definitive answer. <laughs> yes, he knew he knew it was coming. Uh, John, yeah. yeah, hopefully the Alabama game can be finalized for 2020. This will mean USC will be playing them in the 2019 playoffs then to start the 2020 season. Uh, that's a pretty optimistic view. Uh, the current yeah. freshman class and a few of the sophomores should be big-time players by 2019. If the current staff can coach up the freshmen and redshirt freshmen, finding playing time for everyone will be a challenge. Don, Don, very optimistic about this team in 2019. You look at Alabama and you say, you know, they obviously recruited the best uh, and they figure out a way to get most of those guys uh, some playing time. And they've done a pretty good job. And yeah, they have guys leave. They have quarterbacks that leave, uh, you know, almost every year. Uh, but, you know, you get to a certain point and you don't want to leave. Uh, and that's where I think the USC program has to be is they get to that next level. And I know people at USC, oh, what do you mean the next level? No, you get to that next level. And we're talking about that, that elite elite level where the program is competing for national championships and kids don't want to leave. And that's where I think USC you know, has to, has to get and where you've got enough good players that practice is a real challenge uh, <coughs> excuse me for the starters where they've got somebody coming after them every single day in practice and that gets rewarded you know for the guys that are coming after them so um, uh, uh, but I think 
I would like to think people are thinking that, yeah, we'll be ready to challenge by 2019. And yeah, by 2020, that'd be a great back-to-back. Uh, get, that's how USC must think. I, I think they've got to get that, you know, uh, uh, Alabama game uh, in 2000, you know, get that out of their heads, get that out of their minds at 2016 Alabama game and say that's never going to happen again. And uh, use that as a benchmark to say, uh, you know, that's the low point, and we want to play them. And if you can't play them, then you know you, you shouldn't be talking about national championships, which everybody at USC keeps talking about. So uh, you look at the the talent coming in the last couple of years, and you think they ought to be able to think about getting there. Uh, but you said the the key point is, can they coach them up? Can they coach them up and develop them and get them there? And that's the challenge. Uh, and you want that to be the challenge for this team. You absolutely want it to be the challenge. And uh, it'd be great. And, and if they could create, you know, like a, I mean, I like the idea of maybe a, sort of a kickoff game for the uh Rams stadium, uh, you know, uh, why wouldn't the Rams want to start doing what, you know, Jerry Jones and the Cowboys have done for years and what now the uh, new Mercedes Benz stadium in Atlanta are doing by, you know, opening the season with a uh, kickoff classic, uh, of two great programs on kind of a neutral field. And, uh, wouldn't that be a wonderful way? Uh, USC could almost count that as a home game. I would guess if they could get Alabama to come here. And they'd probably have to return it to Alabama, and that would be fine. If they could get you know Alabama to come in 2020, that would be my preference for that thing, if they can get that all organized and that uh, not bad playing a game in a $5 billion oh. stadium. <laughs> New budgets. <laughs> Whoops. So – uh, kind of, as somebody mentioned on the P, I think, uh, kind of makes that $270 million uh, renovation of the Coliseum look, uh, look uh, a little puny. Now, I know that's probably counting all the, you know, the commercial and residential development, and it's the entire project at, uh, at the old Hollywood Park there for, uh, for the Rams. But, uh, but that wouldn't be a bad thing. I mean, you know, and, and I think the, the same possibility exists for uh, uh, for the new uh, NFL stadium in Las Vegas. And as much as Alabama has been a driving force in what's going on at, uh, at AT&T and then Mercedes-Benz, and those are two places where it's really, uh, you know, Alabama fans love going, going there, and it's not that big of a challenge for them to do that. You'd love to see USC get involved and maybe be the driving force uh, for setting up a game like that at uh, maybe alternating, uh, you know, between Las Vegas and uh, and uh, Los Angeles to start this season and, and getting somebody to come and play, you know, uh, an SEC program, for example, or a Big Ten program in a, uh, you know, maybe a, a programs that you couldn't necessarily get home and home, but might come, you know, a Michigan or Ohio State who might come for that. Uh, so, Again, USC, I think, has some real opportunities if they show uh, the kind of leadership that uh, that USC was never afraid to do. <clears throat> when you look at uh, USC's history, uh, 
they did things that nobody else was. I mean, they were the ones that were willing to play Notre Dame back in the 20s when uh, the Big Ten was trying to freeze Notre Dame out. Michigan and Ohio State would not play this Catholic school from Indiana. And USC said, we will. And they, you know, they draw 120,000 one year and 112,000 another the next year at, uh, at Soldier Field in Chicago. And that changed the whole nature of college football really it, it changed it in a way you know in the 20s that it, college football was different from that moment on and that was because usc notre dame said you know we'll play one another and i think this is an opportunity to take the advantage of uh of the the two new nfl stadiums that are going to be you know two of the, the obviously great great stadiums in America and, and, and would be the kind of trips that fan bases from all over the country would probably like to make. So I, I'd really like to see USC be very aggressive in, uh, in, in taking advantage of, of those two venues that are going to come online in, uh, you know, 2000, what are, is it 2020? 2020, 2019. Yeah. 2020, 20, yeah. yeah. 2020, perfect, yeah. That's, that is right, 2020. Uh, what an opportunity that is for USC. I think they really have to start thinking about about that. And maybe that's the holdup because they've already announced the 2021 game at AT&T Stadium and for Alabama. Uh, they've already announced their opener for 2021, uh, but they haven't announced their 2020 opener. And so you think maybe the reason the holdup is they're trying to work out all the details we could only hope with the new Rams stadium, which would be, and, and it would be a wonderful tribute to uh, the Bear Bryant and John McKay days. I would think, you know, the the fact that those guys were able to hook up in, uh, you know, like the 1970 game that became so significant in the history of you know college football and you know in the South, and then um, the next year is the year. Alabama came out to L.A. and surprised everybody because they had secretly put in the wishbone uh, over the summer. Nobody knew that they had done that. And they jumped on <coughs> a USC team that wasn't ready for the wishbone. And, it, you know, Alabama ran it for like 12 years and it had great success. But, uh, but that was a, another one of those moments in, in USC and Alabama, you know, history. And, uh, you know, there been a lot of them, but uh, it would be great, I think, to kind of renew that. Uh, I, can just, I, can't, I can't imagine a better way to open. Uh, I mean, USC, they did that. They could open the renovated Coliseum, I guess, completely, and, uh, and the Rams Stadium. Yeah, so, uh, that would be interesting. So that would give them – I mean – there are a lot of possibilities for USC right now. You just have to take advantage of them. It's there. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's there. I like the it's, Vegas one because at least it wouldn't be a home game. It would be, you know, you go to Vegas, but it would be, you know, you're talking about an SEC team going to Atlanta. That's not that big of a deal. If they would have to, like, you get Georgia to come out to, like, Vegas and play USC, that would be pretty cool, I think. That would be wonderful. Yeah. yeah I just think that's what you got to do. Yeah, that's where we need we need that kind of leadership at USC. That's where you need the people figuring out how to get that done, and, yeah. and then getting getting it done because you're dealing with franchises and new stadiums where they haven't done it before. You know, Jerry Jones has done it, uh, but uh, 
you know, the Rams haven't done it. Uh, the Raiders going into Los Angeles, you know, going into Las Vegas, they haven't done it. But USC has a, a relationship with both of those teams, both of those. So you you would like USC to be able to take advantage of that and and and, and get you know go hand in hand with those guys and and putting these things together because I just think those are the kind of you know they're wonder obviously wonderful for television, they're wonderful for your program because you aren't necessarily Alabama smart. They get a good opponent, but they don't have to go on the road to play that opponent. Uh, smart. It's good for their fans, and it's good for the revenue. The the you know we keep getting the reports that that's like a six million dollar you know game, uh you know for whoever plays at it, and uh, you know everybody's looking for for that kind of revenue. So it's kind of a you know win 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 win, all the way around. I mean, do you think USC fans wouldn't just go crazy to uh, you know get in their cars and drive over to Las Vegas? For an Alabama game to oh, open yeah. the season? Oh, my goodness. That would be huge. Um, all it right. would be. Tarion in Vegas. Uh, Tarion wanted to know some Pac-12 stuff. Tarion, you know, I'm just going to say go to our podcast of champions. It's Pac-12podcast.com. We did a whole episode on it last week just talking about the disastrous Pac-12 football and basketball records in the postseason. So we did a whole show on that. So I'll let you kind of go back and listen to that one. And then uh, one last one, Jim said, awesome podcast. Thanks for the hard work. For Dan, there was an article out entitled Emmert Deposed in the USC Defamation Case. What does it all mean? Can you take the legalese out of it and bring it down to where the rubber meets the road for us simpletons? Where is this case going, and is the NCAA ever going to be exposed for the corrupt cronies that they are? Fight on from Jim B. Well, I think the Emmert situation is and I knew uh, they are uh, citing him for what he said <coughs> in a USA Today story fairly soon after he got uh, the uh, job as president, where he said was questioned about the USC case, and he said, "I think they got it. They got it right," and and blah blah blah, and answered one question about he thought they definitely got it right. Well, this was while this, this was real soon after the case had been, uh, the decision had been handed down before the appeals had gone through. So while the case was under appeal here, the, uh, you know, the president of the NCA says they got it right. And obviously, uh, that could influence, uh, the people on the, on the appeals committee. And, and we always had the feeling that they didn't even, we're not sure if they even read the appeal that they just boom, get out of here. Uh, but, uh, uh, so that was improper. And then he says, and there, I guess their attorneys have said, well, you can't depose him about this. He had no idea what he was talking about. He didn't read the uh, file. He didn't read the case. He didn't blah, blah, blah. He was just talking when you say, wait a minute, you're paying a guy a couple of million dollars a year. Who's going to run your organization. And he's talking to the biggest newspaper in America. And he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's not exactly. I mean, I, I, I read what the NCAA lawyers said as to why he shouldn't be deposed. And I thought, so the best defense you can come up with is he has no idea what he's talking about. So I said, that's not, if I'm the president of the NCAA, I'm not sure I want my lawyers saying that. Well, the judge said, the heck, he said it. Now we got to find out what does he mean? What did he know? What, what were they telling him? 
why did he say that? Uh, and, and it's a kind of a good example of what's happened in the case the whole time. I mean, let's face it. What happened was USC, they wanted to hammer USC. They were afraid of USC. USC was screwing up the SEC's plan to dominate college football. The SEC had figured out in the old BCS days, they could get a, a team in the championship game every single year. Roy Kramer of the uh, former SEC commissioner, former Vanderbilt football coach, was a genius. And he set it up, and everybody thought this is what the SEC needs to come back and take over college football. And he had the right plan. The only problem is they saw USC on the horizon. They knew, for example, in 2003, USC would have beaten LSU. Uh, they were able to keep USC out, but USC still won the AP National Championship. And then in 2004, they saw what happened, and the SEC people, I think, mostly, were thrilled to death that they weren't the team that got in the championship game with uh, and Oklahoma did. But they saw what happened to Oklahoma, and they thought, well, is our plan to get a team in the championship game every year going to be really that good a plan if that USC team keeps showing up? year after year after year. And I think, you know, they, I think there was a decision that, and my general take on this is the, uh, the people at the NCA thought, and they do come from their, uh, from the schools. And they thought they knew that if they had a program going, you know, USC almost won an unprecedented three straight national championships if it weren't for Vince Young and on that last, you know, last play for Texas. Uh, that, uh, uh, you know, that, that there was no way that they were going to be able to compete with USC and that they knew that if they were that good and you can just fill in the name of any of these top programs, they would have, they knew how much cheating they would have had to be doing. And so they basically said, USC has to be cheating. They gotta be doing stuff. You can't be that good without cheating. <laughs> so they go after USC and they go four years, the longest uh, uh, investigation in NCAA history. And they've got zip. They got nothing. So what do they do? They panic. And they basically made stuff. They had to connect the USC program with whatever was turning up for, for Reggie Bush. And they had to show that USC absolutely knew about it, and the person they thought they could tie into that knowledge was Todd McNair. And so they just made stuff up. And it said, oh, he said this when he didn't, or this interview happened this way, or he made the call instead of they made the call. You know, they got everything wrong, and they knew it, and they were told they were wrong, and they didn't do anything to change it, and that's why they're in trouble now. They broke their own bylaws. Uh, they were allowing people to have influence, uh, uh, you know, one-sided influence on the Committee on Infractions, which USC didn't know about, uh, it, 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 because they were panicking because they had to get USC, and because uh, everybody expected them to take USC down. And they wanted to take USC down harder than they took Miami down for all the, you know, transgressions that Miami made. One of the reasons, obviously, is the head of the uh, uh, Committee on Infractions was the guy who was the athletic director at Miami when all the dirty stuff was going on. And 
he thought I it was kind of because he said so when he had the press conference was uh, he made a point that USC was getting more penalties than Miami got. And I think there were all kinds of corrupt motives involved with the NCA in this case. And, uh, and it, it came down on Todd McNair. They basically said, we're going to sacrifice this guy's whole life, his career, because we needed, we needed a scapegoat. And so they made Todd McNair the scapegoat. They tied this stuff to him. They lied about it. Uh, and they used that to give, instead of maybe a two or three scholarship penalty for playing an eligible player and, and, and saying those games were, you, you forfeit those games. They used it to take away 30 scholarships and two years of, of uh, bowl participation and, and you know, the, the biggest penalty ever. And uh, they needed to do that. They needed to tie it into a guy at USC, and they did, and they did it, you know, unfairly and illegally. And, uh, and now they're going to have to probably pay, pay for it, whether there's going to be a settlement. The people you talk to that seem to know Sure think it's going to trial. And uh, in a a two-week trial, with all the discovery and depositions that that the Todd McNair people have gotten, you would think uh, an awful lot is going to come out about the NCAA and the corrupt way this was done. And, uh, uh, you know, so I think it will come out. You wish USC would have been part of this case or, or been in a position where they could benefit directly from this case, but right now the case will only be, you know, about Todd McNair. Now you'll be able to, you know, extrapolate and say, well, if, you know, if if he was wrong, obviously USC was, but USC will be more just an observer in this case, but, uh, but it'll show how corrupt uh, the NCAA's way of, you know, investigating things. And now finally, Emmert, I think is being, called upon by like the PAC-12, for example. PAC-12 came out with their recommendations uh, as a result of all the basketball, the FBI investigation into the basketball uh, stuff, and said the NCAA needs a completely separate, independent, investigative and judicial uh, uh, group that is not representative by schools like Miami. You don't want a committee... I mean, for example, right now, on the Committee on Infractions, who is, in cho- who is the chair of the Committee on Infractions of the NCA? None other than Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference, which by chance, from the last numbers I saw, he has the fewest uh, investigations going of any conference in America. Huh, wonder why. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, is is that a surprise? No, obviously not. Is that the way they ought to do it? No. Uh-uh. Uh, I mean, there's a back and forth right now between North Carolina and the SEC in the North Carolina case, or there was, uh, and they're, you know, they're trying to get, you know, Greg Sankey off the committee and anything that has to do with them because of the back and forth in terms of recruiting and all that between the Southeastern Conference and, and the ACC. Uh, it just doesn't work, <clears throat> and it really didn't work in the USC uh, Reggie Bush Todd McNair case. And hopefully the NCAA has to pay 
uh, at a level that, um, you know, makes them say, well, we're never going to do that again. But a number of the people that were involved in this case at the NCA staff level are still there. And uh, I don't know if anybody's you know, going to pay a price or not. But, uh, but uh, stay tuned. April 18th, uh, at least a couple of weeks is what we're thinking in Los Angeles Superior Court. And uh, uh, I, I just kind of want to see how the NCA – I think, you know, if you had to guess, <clears throat> the NCA is going to have a lot of people not remembering exactly what happened. And, you know, there wasn't, you know, just kind of slips in my mind exactly, you know, <laughs> and all of that kind of thing. But, uh, but, uh, what they did to Todd McNair is so evil. It's so wrong. When you read some of the emails of the things they said about him and all that, it's just so prejudicial, so unfair. Uh, and, and to take away a guy's livelihood and his career, just because they needed the time in to make the penalties worse, worse on USC is just—I mean—it's just awful. It's just—they're bad people that, that that did this. They acted in a in a in a bad way in this particular case, and uh, they ought to be ashamed and they ought to have to pay a price. And they will. Um, one one last thing. I know we went really really long today. Thanks for everyone for sticking with us. Um, so. News broke while we were doing this podcast that Cody Kessler was traded away to the Jacksonville Jaguars, so he's no longer in Cleveland, meaning Sam Darnold, you know, likely is going to go to Cleveland, won't be reunited with Cody Kessler. Kessler will be reunited with um, Marquise Lee, so that's good. But our uh, Andrew Siciliano, yeah. so there's a tweet I want to read you, Dan, from Andrew Siciliano. Okay. He said, with Cody Kessler gone... Do the Browns sign Max Brown to start the first three games and bridge to Sam Darnold? So I thought that was hilarious, and I tweeted that out, and people were, are laughing at it. But I thought I would share that with well, you guys. Well, that's great. I, I think I think there is no question Hugh Jackson, uh, you know, L.A. Dorsey high guy and former USC quarterbacks coach and offense coordinator, I think he has a thing. He really likes uh, connecting back to USC. I don't think there's any question. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you probably maybe don't want a uh, you know a quarterback staff with a couple of USC guys on it. So I think that works for both of them. Uh, yeah. And so uh, so that's a good deal. You do sure think Cleveland's made up their mind. I mean, uh, and then when you hear about Jim Mora come out and say, if I were Cleveland, you know, I'd take him. Or I most of these teams in the NFL, I'd take him over Rosen. And and I thought Mora was being really honest there uh, in saying that Sam Donald's personality fits with almost everybody in the NFL. And I think he was kind of trying to say Josh Rosen doesn't necessarily. That it's You've got to be more selective on where Josh Rosen goes. And I think the New York Giants, for example, would be a good fit for him. But then the New York Jets, I'm not so sure. Uh, that's a whole different kind of organization. So uh, uh, I, thought, I thought it was really uh, interesting about Mora, and this makes it even more kind of uh, sensical. It makes good sense that, uh, that he would go to Cleveland and yet not have the other USC quarterback there. All right, well, we're going to wrap it up. Dan Weber does a great job for us over at uscfootball.com. Thanks again, Dan, for coming on. Oh, thanks. And thanks for all the questions out there. Yeah, great questions. Thanks for everyone sending those in. 
And thank you for all, all of you for listening and tuning in here at our little show at the Peristyle Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and we will talk to you next time. You may have noticed that shopping at Trader Joe's is unlike shopping at other markets. People ask us all the time how we manage to have such unique, interesting, and delicious products at such great everyday prices. This is Dan Bain of Trader Joe's. The answer is simple. It's all in the way we do business. We buy directly from the manufacturer whenever possible. This helps to keep our costs low, and we pass those savings on to you. No gimmicks, just great values at honest prices, every day at Trader Joe's. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 